welcome to episode 155 of Controller Controllables. I'm excited for you guys to listen to this one. If you're wanting to control momentum, you're thinking about your game and how you can improve your game. Your game versus their game. Where where can I apply pressure to uh, exploit your weaknesses? And then turning points and events of the match. Where is there something in the game that I could capitalise? Alistair Hyam, uh, match flow and momentum. I've known Alistair for a long time. I remember Alistair took me away when I was only 13 years old. So he's someone that's been around at a very high level in the sport of tennis for 30, 40 years now. And then over the last few years, he's developed a real passion to really dig deep into a specific part of the sport. I was fascinated to understand which way this conversation would go. I had some strong opinions myself that I wanted to put to the test against Alistair and all the the science that goes behind momentum in sport. So if that's a subject of interest to you, you'll love it. You'll get to know Alistair. You'll hear many different stories from his time and and get a, a stronger understanding to what the objectiveness of match flow and momentum in a tennis match or in a, in a sporting match or in your life. You know, sometimes we feel as if the momentum's with us or the momentum isn't with us. So I hope you enjoy this one. I'm not going to talk any longer because it's, it is a long episode. Apologies for that, but I think it, it is worth it and it's a real learning episode for you all. So I'm going to pass you over to Alistair Hyam. So, Alistair, hi, I'm a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Thanks, Dan. Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, very well, very well, thanks. And you uh, you had to go and catch COVID to try and put me off. You know, we were supposed to do this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you can't, you've got nowhere to hide now. I've got you. No, it's all it's all up front now. I'm all better, all recovered. So, hopefully, uh, yeah, if I dip out in the middle, it'll be electronic, not COVID. Great. Well, it's, it's good to have you. And I know, look, and, and for the listeners, we, we are going to get into a, a big topic today. The, the the meat, I guess, of our conversation will be around, I know, a big passion of yours, Alistair, around momentum, momentum in sport. You know, it's a conversation I'm really excited to have. But I, I guess if we talk about the the momentum of your life, how it how it started, it has to start somewhere. And and where did that passion for your tennis start? Well, I think it started when um, Tom Dolan, Doctor Tom Dolan, contributed some money to build some new tennis courts in the little town of Wigton in Cumbria. And in those days, there was a million things to do, so we we started hanging around the big shiny new courts, and they were great. And I think it's my mum and dad were, I'm not going to say beginner tennis players, but they were certainly no experts. And uh, But more and more, I started cycling down there and hanging around the tennis club. And it, and it was great and kept playing and eventually played club matches. And then went to play Chatsworth Tennis Club in Carlisle, which is now the, the main centre in Cumbria with its indoor courts, but not in those days. And uh, having played a match or two there... Uh, an envelope came and was put on our clubhouse in Wigton, and it said to the little red-headed boy in Wigton, and it was oh, wow. an invite from Kath Messenger, who was the county coach, to county training. 
And luckily, I got to it before the very talented little redheaded boy from Wigton. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I went to uh, you know went to counter training and really enjoyed it. And I think you know the people around there at the time, Mike Robinson, Cath Messenger, very welcoming, very team focused. Mike was then big influence really. He was um, county captain at the time. And having just met him, I actually remember him coming to play an exhibition match with John Messenger. And I would be, he's a bit older than I am, and I would be 14. And I actually got his autograph at the time. I remember going to get his autograph at the end because he played a backhand smash. And I'd never seen a backhand smash. I thought it was amazing. I never knew it existed as a shot. And uh, it was a clean winner right down the middle. I can see it in my mind's eye right now. And, you know, I went on to play doubles with him, best man at his wedding, best man at my wedding. And um, I've never seen him play another backhand smash since. That's the <laughs> irony of the whole thing. That was one of the things that really got me into tennis. I've never seen him play another one since. But isn't it funny? I I, I use this. Um, I speak to Jamie Delgado a lot about this. I, I watched Jamie play. I think I was at the under 14 Orange Bowl and he was playing the under 16s and he'd won the under 14s and we went to watch him. Yeah. And and I saw him holding his backhand grip quite extreme. I didn't yeah. know it was extreme. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I just I just liked it. I thought, and from that day, that's how I held my backhand. And right. it, yeah. it's it is these small things and and, and I can't help thinking what an authentic little story you've told there, you know, even from the, the letter that is dropped off to invite you to go to county training and, and then to your story of the backhand smash, because nowadays it's just not done in that way. There's almost probably an expectancy to be picked you know, and mm. there's so many different ways of that message being delivered. And mm. and then there's so much on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok, mm. that you're seeing so many of these things. How do our mm. youngsters, I guess, filter, filter mm. that information to have those real wow moments? I don't yeah. know if you found that with your boys as well who played tennis. Well, I think it was definitely free range in those age. And now it's much more battery uh, produced, isn't it? It's battery chicken, so to speak. Um, But I think boys and girls are boys and girls ultimately. And they may be distracted by technology, but I think there's still still hope there. They're still um, looking for those, I guess, older people to look up to and influences on their career. So, yes, as a parent with my boys, I mean, I think they, they were very, very lucky to be surrounded a by a tremendous facility in Nottingham, but also some, just some great people in tennis. I think we're very, very lucky in tennis to have some yeah. amazing characters, many of whom you've had on the podcast, who um, really have got great character, great stories, great influence. And yeah, I think you know whether it's because tennis brings that out through the competing, the camaraderie, the fact that it's an individual sport that we have to get together with people from very often far away and make contacts. Um, I mean, I know it's not a team sport, so we don't always have that aspect, but it, it, it really is a great sport for having role models and, you know, characters around you. And Cumbria, you know, if I take you back to Cumbria, that I was a, I was a boy who our go-to holiday was the Lake District. You know, it was never, 
it was never appreciated by me in my younger days um, and what I would do to spend more time in the Lake District now, you know, the one of the most beautiful places that there is out there. But I'm, I don't think I ever saw a tennis court when I was when I was up in that part of the world. So yeah. it, it really is quite isolated. So it's it's it, it is interesting that that you managed to get into a sport that probably wasn't the masses in Cumbria, I guess, weren't being exposed to the sport of tennis. No, it was it was quite niche, isn't it? I mean, the facilities are still minimal up there. And uh, we did play our county championships in Keswick, which is beautiful in Fitz Park with the mountains all around. So oh. that was great. A lot of um, chance to reflect on your match because it was raining. But it, it did help me learn a lot about tennis. And I think it did help me learn a lot about momentum because... Um, I was either county champion or number one for 20 years in a row, partly because it was a small county. Um, but what that did is it put me in a position of as number one seed with people aiming at me a lot. Yeah. And of course, when that happens, when there's a favourite and an underdog, then very often the underdog's playing really, really well and the favourite might be a bit nervous, i.e. me, I might be a bit nervous. And then there's a moment where you just move away and actually learning about how matches and the dynamics of matches move I think probably that influenced it quite a lot by, as you say, not having very many people who played and therefore as somebody who played a lot, uh, being one of the better players, uh, then that was, you know, I think that really impacted on, on how I learned about the game. One, one question that jumps to my mind and, you know, when I have these conversations with, with so many people now, is it, is it the sport that you think you bought into or is it the people that give you the experience, I guess, through the vehicle of the sport that you buy into? I think they have to go hand in hand. It's definitely, I mean, definitely the people, but the people and the relationships around the sport and the discussions around what happened, the looking forward to the matches and match tees after, the, the drinks in the bar, the chats between, the experiences, shared experiences on court. So I think, I think you've hit on something there. I think it is the people, but it's around the sport and yeah. the, the relationships develop through what happens in the sport. But it's definitely, it wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for the people around it. And, and as you, to take that point forward, because obviously you, you've, you've coached for many years. I know you've moved into into different roles nowadays, but at the heart of who you are, certainly what I know you as is, mm. is, is a very good tennis coach and someone who was, who was yourself influenced so many people, you know? And I think what we find ourselves in those positions, sometimes we don't realize how powerful, privileged, influential the position of a, of a, of a tennis coach is. What was it that, that moved you towards the coaching? What was it that you attracted you to, to be a tennis coach? I think staying in sport was a big motivator. And I think that not having achieved to the highest level, I achieved, I beat players for world ranking, but I never really got a world ranking. Um, I played German club league, played in France, um, but was always falling short. And I felt growing up in Cumbria, I sort of missed an opportunity to train to a higher level from a young age, like uh, like there is the opportunity to do now. And um, I think as a coach, there was a chance really to 
help players achieve perhaps what I hadn't achieved. And I think that was the motivation. But my background's teaching as well. So it was it was a natural, actually, French teaching. So I trained as a French teacher at university, but never went into it, went straight into playing and then coaching. So I think um, the teaching led to the coaching. And, yeah. you know, you are coaching players. You, you know, there's always the saying in teaching, you don't coach so you don't teach French, you teach pupils is the is yeah. the, the way to go about it. And that's just a little bit the same in tennis. You know, you teach the players yeah. and, uh, you know, really enjoyed bringing the players on, particularly to win tennis matches. And tell tell the listeners a, a little bit about your coaching journey, you know, where, where that started, where that where that took you to, because you you obviously reached a very, a very high level as a, as a tennis coach as well. I think it be well. It began in Cumbria doing little bits of coaching, and then when I was at university, and and I I would do my level one in those days. But then having left and started playing full time, it was my dad who said, "Well, you've got to do your level, you know, your next levels." So by that stage, probably actually did level three at university, yeah, and as it is now. But then when I was playing full time, I did my level four because it was it was. He said, "Well." why wouldn't you do it now when you've got the time? And then if you go into coaching, when you finish playing, you can just step right in rather than finish playing. And then I've got to do my coaching badges and uh, qualifications. So that was always a sort of a sideline. So it was a dual career in a sense. And I think it's, it's always important when you play full time to understand why you're playing and what you're gaining from it, even if you don't win Wimbledon. Uh, and in that way, it was easy to get other things, contacts, qualification, travel experience, all great um, results of playing full time, um, but in particular, the coaching and that. So I guess that led into that. Then I did some coaching for Simon Ickringill around Ilkley. And then a job came up because uh, I actually had also organised some tournaments, the old VW tournaments, if you remember those, Dan, in Cumbria. I remember the name, yeah, I do. I'm sure, I'm sure I played that a couple of years. Yeah, they were great tournaments, great yeah. tournaments. And, um, and I was the tournament organiser for that. The person who um, had been my boss, I guess, in, in that, although it was only a part-time thing, uh, recommended me for a job in Nottinghamshire as county coach. In fact, it was called county coach and development officer in those days. It was part-time role. And that's when I got really seriously into coaching because that suddenly you county coach and yep. I played full time for two years and probably too young, too inexperienced, but learned very quickly on the job. And after a year's coaching, coaching everybody, schools, coaching beginners, coaching intermediates, coaching county players, I very quickly realized that I enjoyed coaching players and I wanted to coach players and I wanted to really coach them to a high level. And so Ian McCulloch, who was county secretary at the time, found us some sponsorship. And we were able to, there was probably six to eight players who we thought could be really good. And um, some of them you would know, Helen Reesby, yeah. Sarah Wright, Andrew Wakefield, Jamie Drummond, Mark Powell, um, Vicky Hall, Claire Carter. So that group of players, I started coaching individually, but I quickly worked out that if I saw them each once a week individually and they had some squads, county squads or regional squads, I was still only seeing them for three, four hours a week. Yeah. So I decided, I talked to all the parents, talked to the county, and I put them, all eight of them really, in on one or two courts 
for um, all the time they would have had individual coaching and squads. So rather than see Claire once a week and Helen once a week and everybody, suddenly they go from getting one hours of individuals to eight hours of small squad training. And that, that in itself made a tremendous difference because I think we're very lucky in tennis. We, we can, as good coaches, accelerate the process, but simply by hitting balls, they get better. And therefore, the more balls you hit, the better you get. And, um, and that made a tremendous difference. And at one stage, um, there was as many, out of the many players on the Rover scheme, I think, as anybody in the country, because they all went on to that uh, national scheme called the Rover scheme at the time. But they were great times. We, we were going to France. We were going to play in France, playing the, the uh, Circuit Benjamin. We were, you know, they were intense. I mean, you couldn't do it now, I don't think. We had my wife went with me, um, fiance at the time, as the sort of support. But, you know, just great times in campsites, finding practice courts, playing um, the, the, all the best of the French, going round, coming back, playing the Tom's here. And um, yeah, didn't earn any money, but had a great time and learnt a lot on the job. It's very, um, it's very Spanish style. That is, you know that really? uh, you know. Well, yeah, just the very much. That is kind of how it works in Spain. It's they hunt in packs. You know that's the yeah. that that's really the model over here. It's you know you've got you've got hundreds of academies. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean an academy has 100 players. You know, mm-hmm. an academy might have eight players and mm-hmm. what one or two coaches. And yeah. and they what they do is they all go to the events together, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and they support each other, they're with each other, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're pushing each other all the way and almost as close to a team sport as it can be, you know, even though you're, you're competing individually. So you were maybe ahead of your time doing that. Well, yeah, maybe, and um, I think it, it was great times. I think the the one downside to it is probably uh, I was so focused on those eight players that probably wasn't a production line at the time, so I didn't yes. really yeah. perhaps cater enough for the next level down. But yeah, it, that's nice for you to say being ahead of the time. But it was it was just doing what we thought was the right thing to do, and I think my parents had been a very influential French teacher and a history teacher, but we always went to France. So I was just used to traveling and I knew, I mean, like Spain, there's tennis courts everywhere in France and there's taunts everywhere in France. So um, yeah, real experiences actually and learning quickly about coaching and in particular performance coaching and the ability to improve your players from match to match as opposed to coaching uh, in a vacuum from matches. Yeah, because can you in your opinion, truly develop a tennis player if you don't see them compete? Um, very, very difficult, I think. it's You can't imagine football coach Jurgen Klopp going, yeah, good luck on the weekend, lads. Let me know how you get on a Monday. I'll be back in on Monday. See you next week. And, and every other sport has this coaching to a fixture list. And they coach during the week to improve the performance at the weekend and of course the performance across the season so it's not all short-term coaching you're far from it you're working from match to match but you're also trying to develop the skills that you're going to need for future matches and incorporating and i think it's it's a, it's a big interest in uh, the momentum and match flow as well is incorporating the experiences from matches 
into the coaching is critical because what we're running is a learning program effectively. Our coaching programs are learning programs. So we can't afford not to know what our players are experiencing in matches and incorporate them back into the sessions that we're running if the aim is to improve match play. And I appreciate that that's not everybody's aim. There might be cardio tennis, tennis for um, coaching for well-being, mental well-being, physical Absolutely. well-being. But if it's uh, if you're coaching for competitive and match play, you certainly have to have meaningful debriefs of the matches you didn't see. And I would say you need to watch a good amount of matches, uh, whether that's on video or turning up or committing to a number of weeks per year. So, yeah. And in fact, I'd, I personally don't think I can. I'm a very good coach if I don't watch matches. I get a bit, if I'm honest, I get a little bit edgy when I'm coaching, if I'm coaching somebody when I don't know how they perform, because I feel a little bit, um, I don't want to say a fraud because that's wrong, but I feel I'm not on the money. Blinded. I feel feel blinded. I feel like I'm only getting half the story and can't help as much as I can. So I'm still coaching now, coaching a player who's top five in the country under 14. And uh, well, have been coaching. He's actually just moved now to a tennis school. But Again, watched a lot of matches, Was watching video last weekend from uh, now you can watch it on stream because you just you need to know what they're experiencing in order to help them. And, and I think I think that's a really important conversation, Alistair, because and, and as as always, there's two sides, you know, because the, there's the coach sitting there listening to this saying, oh, well, it's easy to say that, but I make my I make my money on a Saturday or I make my money on a Sunday. Yeah. And mm. it, it's why actually I I personally struggle a little bit with self-employed coaches and hourly rate coaching. I think it I think it's very restrictive in mm. terms of in terms of how you develop a player. Now yes. can I just say though, Dan, sorry to interrupt, I think that there's uh, we're really trying to help those coaches in the work that we've been doing match flow momentum because I think part of it is having meaningful discussions and having the tools and the language to have those discussions with the players. So you, if you coach a player and you're not able to watch them and I fully understand the finances of that, but the frustration I have when I've not watched a match and I say to the player, how did you get on? They go, oh, I just played badly or yeah. I just played well. And it's I'm thinking, right. it was all right, yeah. If I watched that match, I would have two pages of notes, three pages of notes. I'd be working on this and that. So I think, you know, what we've been working on with Match Flow Momentum, the online courses, is designing things that a language and a framework for discussing what happens in a match, but also being able to review it properly so you can incorporate the sessions, sorry, can incorporate the lessons from that match in your sessions because it's been properly reviewed and taken time to do that. So... Yeah, sorry, I keep pulling it back to momentum and match flow, which you can tell is my passion. But that's no, and we look, and and that's and it's something that one hundred percent I want us to really dig. I want us to dig in because I think it's a it's a fascinating subject. It's a subject we don't see a lot of, you know, and 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 I think the fact that it is your passion, you've spent years studying this and and getting to a point where you've got applications to to bring it through. But before we go there. I, I just want to. I just want to get your thoughts on this because yeah. I value you as. I mean, um, for for the listeners 
to know. Alistair used to take me away when I was young. So <laughs> I know I know we look the same age, but he's got... Uh, and Dan's few... still young, listeners, <laughs> just so you know. He's still very young, so it doesn't make me that old. He's got a few years on me. But you've been, you've been involved at the sport at, at a very high level and lots of various levels for so long. What... What is the answer to, because I think we, we all know, and we can, I don't mind being quite blunt on these things, forget developing a tennis player if you're not going to regularly see them compete, you know, bottom line, you know, if you're not going to be going on that true journey with them, you know, you're not the right person to be the lead, you know, you might play a consultancy role, you might play a mentorship role, you might play, you know, just a, a support role, but players to truly develop to an international level need that. Yet the, the structure of the way tennis coaches are set up in the UK, I think you can probably, in, in a position to certainly speak about in the UK, is that it's it's very challenging for that to happen for and for you for you guys listening do very simple maths if you paid 40 pounds an hour and you're working eight hours on a saturday that's pretty much probably a, a third of, of your income that's coming in on, on a saturday so to give that up to go and watch a tennis match unless you are being compensated for that is is very difficult so what is the solution or what are some solutions that you yeah. think to that, to that problem? Well, the, first, the most innovative I've heard is from Keith Reynolds, who has a stack of good ideas and is obviously hugely respected across the world. And one of the things he said was um, coaches could consider charging either a monthly fee or an annual fee. And for that, you get the package. And the package includes, I will watch 10 matches or I will watch 20 matches and I will coach you for this many hours. So it's not, you know, it's an, it's an innovative way. And I've, I don't know if it's been tried, but I remember he told me that quite some years ago. And I think it's probably, it's how most businesses are now, monthly or annual. And certainly I think you could, on the website or on your advertising material, it wouldn't be too hard to commit to watching, to being at some local tournaments for a number of days of the year when it perhaps wouldn't impact on the income too much. Um, so most places have got a, a tournament that's a, an open tournament nearby or a county champs nearby. And to commit to a number of days there per year, I think is, is quite possible. Then I think, um, I mean, obviously the video now and the streaming and the ability to watch online and be able to watch in your own time away from, um, you know, the well, at the times when it suits you, when you're not losing money. I think that's another potential solution. Before we move into your philosophy, which I think will take us into, into momentum, mm -hmm. what are your strengths as a coach? I think probably tying things together, um, if that's not too looser way of describing it I think as coaches we need to be able to prioritize and tie things together yep. I think it's very easy to get in down down a rabbit hole and I think I've learned to prioritize well and see what's the most important thing to work on I think uh, helping with match flow momentum and winning tennis matches I think is I would say that as well Team, I've learned a lot about team as well. So I really enjoy captaining teams, whether that's the British University team or if I'm in a county team or club team. I think, you know, knitting the teams together is something that I've learned from people who are able to do it. And it's it's not too complicated, but it's uh, I think it's something I really, really enjoy. 
Um, so I think probably those elements, I think, I think one of the difficult things as a coach is to see, certainly as a younger coach, I remember coaching Vicky Hall and we had three, three sessions the week before the nationals. And uh, I worked on the backhand volley quite a lot. I remember every, every session worked. And I watched her in the quarterfinals nationals. She won. She played for three hours. Have a guess how many backhand volleys she played. Zero or one. One. She played one. It was a double-handed one, and it went in. And we've been working on the single-handed one. And, and, and so that was kind of a light bulb moment. You know, you better start yeah. prioritising the things that are important to the match. And, uh, yeah, so I think that's what I would say. But doesn't that, though, again, and, and my experience of you, Alistair, as a coach, you know, is is you were you were all in. You were in, you were, you were, you were there, you were with your players, you were, and it, it goes back to my to my point. And I want to I want to ram this point home for coaches listening because mm-hmm. it's when you're all in and you're not just teaching lessons, you you have a vision. And the example I always give is developing a tennis player is like putting a 50,000 piece jigsaw together. And, and if somebody takes the box away and you don't see what you're trying to develop, it's now very difficult to contextualize that information you've got on the open stance backhand. It's very difficult to contextualize all of those things. So it sounds to me like you're a bit of a visionary who, who can almost see the, the, the picture you're trying to create. And if mm. you do that, you can then bring that back to go, well, actually, that ties into that and that ties into that in order to create that. Whereas, whereas I, I get the impression that a lot of coaching is done Wednesday, four o'clock, see you next Wednesday. And, yeah. and when that next Wednesday comes around, shit, what do we work? What do we work on last week? And what, okay. Oh, well, I've seen this good video. I've been on this good conference. So we'll do mm-hmm. a bit of this, this on this week. But but where does that fit into your final jigsaw and puzzle yeah. that you're trying to bring together? I think that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, Dan, but I think I think I do start with the end in mind. And I think, you know, I think it comes from watching Wimbledon and being a big supporter of tennis as a 12, 13, 14 year old when we didn't really have many successful players. And every time a new British player came out, and there was a lot of false starts in those days, as a supporter, I would be thinking, oh, could this be, you know, <laughs> like my football team, somebody I could really get behind, somebody who was passionate, who had variety, who played the way that I wanted to see them play. And I think that's definitely come through into my coaching. You know, can I see them walking out? on the big stage and entertaining people with variety playing attacking. And, and also I think it's an interesting discussion about building the type of player you want to build in the future, um, which might be a different player for, it has to be a different player for each player that will be able to be successful. Um, so having that longer term vision, starting you know, trying to see where they could go and then working on the strengths that could, you know, take them there. And I think if you can, this is for, you know, for the higher levels, I guess it could be for any level, but if you have a vision as to how they could play, what they would look like and then work backwards and keep it in mind as you go, that's definitely something that I suppose I I have learned to do. And it's an interesting discussion on how much you adapt your game during a match. So I do believe you should adapt your game. I don't don't think the great players really change it. 
But the yeah. ultimate would be in football to play like Man City or Liverpool do. They don't, they adapt bits and yeah. they solve problems. But you know what they're going to do. And yeah. good luck trying to do something about it. And I think that's really what, in terms of helping players to win tennis matches, you want each player, whether it's a, um, the power of Serena or the consistency and topspin of Rafa or the, the way that Federer pulls you apart, you want the other person at the other end to feel, I don't quite know how I'm going to, if they get their game on the court, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. So I think there is definitely a feeling of starting with the end in mind with that, I wouldn't say invincibility, but that very, very high level and then working backwards to try and achieve that. Yeah, no, good. And I, I think actually the way my mind goes to that as well, Alistair, is it, because it, I know everyone listening to these podcasts, it's not just about international level tennis. So it might just be about developing a simple forehand stroke at mini tennis red. Yeah. You have to have a clear vision of what that looks like. And if that, if that looks like this, now you've got your processes and your steps to try and develop that, you know, it, it can, it can certainly be, be, be done at, at all different levels and, 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 and on different magnitudes as well, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I think it's easier as they develop and you can start to see their physical qualities and their game style develop through the teenage years. But you can always have, you know, some basic things which are building blocks at a mini tennis red or mini tennis orange that are going to be required for the future. So I think it's important. I think those development years are really difficult because you're trying to balance a number of things. You're trying to develop for the future. You're trying to have a bit of success now so they stay in the game because... Long-term player development is the most important words for me. They are long-term. They've got to be in it for the long-term. And that means they've got to keep playing tennis rather than the much easier option of football or cricket or netball or basketball or hockey. Or Xbox. Or X, yeah, what am I saying? Or Xbox, (laughs) Fortnite. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Way easier though. So, So there has to be some success. But you're also trying to build things for the future, and that's very often selling them, selling the idea of changing more to the chopper grip when the nine, which is probably going to result in less success, but is going to be way better for the future, or developing the use of a drop shot where you know classic, you know they don't use it because they're scared, and therefore they never use it. And when you're going to start using it, or they use it a little bit earlier on and maybe make some mistakes. But so it, as you develop the player. It's about those building blocks for the future. And very often they only come into their own um, later on. But certainly um, the vision and and seeing where it could go is there from a a young age, at all levels as well, at all levels as well. I can't ask you your strengths without asking you your weaknesses. So, so what, areas for development is the way your areas of development, your constructive, constructive areas as a coach. it's something that is difficult to sort of articulate straight away because I think it's very situation specific. Uh, I think that when I was younger, my area for development would be working with older players because you're too close to them in age. And I think that the, the less coaching you do, the more um, distance you can get from you know, whoever you're coaching or want to coach. So I think my area for development probably at the moment is if I was going back full-time to coaching would be to be 
around to, to be full in, to be, you know, like, as you say, to be full on and all in. Um, naturally, with the things I do now, I've been pulled into different areas. And uh, yeah, so I think I think area development would be, you know, to really commit if I was going to go back into full time coaching. And my last one on coaching, which I think will now feed us into to, to the match flow and the momentum is what, what are your key philosophies as a coach? And, and I guess the second part of that question, Alistair, is how have they, those developed over the years as well? What's the involvement of your philosophy been over the years? Um, I think I was, I think it takes a long time to develop your philosophy and it's definitely evolved over the years. And I think um, th- I'd like to develop thinking players I think yep. that's really important for me, actually, to develop think independent thinking players, uh, players who can think their way through a match. I think, therefore, that impacts on your coaching and the way that you coach. Therefore, I would be uh, hopefully holistic, hopefully inclusive. Hopefully, it would be a shoulder-to-shoulder approach. So I wouldn't be the all. Um, I wouldn't be the great authority standing in front of the player telling them what to do. I would be working with them to develop their game. Um, and as I developed over the years, I think when I was younger, I think it was probably a bit too outcome focused, probably a bit too focused on you know winning. And I think uh, if if I I think shortcutting that by telling them what to do would yeah. be a, a mistake that I make and probably still make because you can see what to do and you want to tell them because you want to help, but actually they need time to make the mistakes and they need time to develop their thinking and. You know, problem solving isn't something you can just give them the answer. You can't give somebody the answer to a problem and expect them to develop problem solving. They have to go through a process and you need to allow time to do that. One of my favourite little um, little stories around, hopefully this will make sense to you, Alistair, is, mm-hmm. is around the sat-nav. You know, if you're trying to, you're trying to find your way somewhere quite complex and you use the sat-nav on Monday... And you use the sat nav on Tuesday, and then yeah. I take the sat nav off you off you on Wednesday. You probably won't be able to find your way. Whereas yeah, if yeah. if on Monday you struggle, you use a map. You know you're really trying to find your way. Tuesday is a bit of a struggle. By Wednesday, you've probably <laughs> got that route locked in for the next few years. You know, and 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 I think that as a theory, I think is I it's wonderful. I I love it. I love that theoretically. Yeah. The practice, the practicality. Is, yeah. is so much more challenging. So do you have any little tips for coaches out there? And I'm certainly one of them that maybe needs to bite my tongue at times. Uh, do you have any tips on how to allow that whole sat-nav story to unfold with our players? I think it's bite size, isn't it? I think you've got to develop, like everything, a technique. You would develop a technique, would go bite size and then put a little bit more yeah. pressure on and put a bit more pressure on. Give them more and more. So I think it's step. It's a, it's a bite-sized step-by-step approach. So I think little problem-solving exercises, which are manageable but restricted. So you know, within coaching, giving them a you know a tactical problem to solve, such as I don't know, I'm, I'm now going to play a certain way. Can you solve the problem within ten points? And let's have a discussion at the end to see if you spotted the problem and what you thought your options were. Yeah. Because 
if if it starts with solving little problems, then you can start bigger problems and bigger problems and bigger problems. And of course, your ultimate problem is when you're on your own in a match, uh, you know, and it's an important match to you at whatever level. But if you've not had those little problems to solve along the way, then uh, yeah, so that that would be my tip: create little problems and then build them to bigger problems and have discussions about them. Like it, and the passion, the passion that you have, me, me and Alistair, I wish we'd recorded our conversation because it was that, that a couple of weeks ago. So I was like, this is a great podcast. This is so good, <laughs> like the information. Um, momentum, match flow momentum. Where, tell us tell us your journey into that. Where's that mm-hmm. all, where did that start? Where did that, that light bulb moment that then, that then made you want to really dig, dig into it even further? Well, I think it's a number of things. I think it's definitely watching Carlisle United. I know you're a Newcastle United fan, Dan. I'm a Carlisle United fan. Have they ever had momentum? (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) Because I think that's where my interest came from, going along on the bus to watch Carlisle as a young boy. And we didn't often have the momentum. And occasionally, one match in particular, we came back from 3-0 down to win 4-3 in 12 minutes, the last 12 minutes of the match. And it was such an electric feeling. So you kind of go... What's this? You know, what? how's this happened? Yeah. What's this? This is n- never seen this before. So when you kind of starved of something and then you see it, you think, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So there's that. There is the um, definitely the element of watching players and listen. Well, I think back to listening to commentary. I think listening to commentary is uh, growing up watching Wimbledon or French Open or any of the Grand Slams and you're listening to the commentary as you can listen now and the comment would say about a player, a top player usually, something like, um, oh, he saw the signs there and raised the game when it matters. And I'm kind of going, what? Saw the signs? I didn't see any signs. What signs are you talking about? He, he, he raised his game. What are you talking about? He raised his game. Why wasn't he already playing his best? Why would he deliberately not play his best in order to raise his game? And I'm thinking, and then I'm having coaching, regular coaching lessons, and nobody's talking to me about raising my game. Nobody's talking about turning points of the match or momentum. And then you keep watching, and next week, about the same player, they say, oh, yeah, he he didn't play his best there. He he played average, uh, but he won ugly. It's really important. Sign of a champion to win ugly, which we know is true. And I'm thinking, but hang on, last week you said he raised his game. So why didn't he raise his game? Was he deliberately playing and winning ugly? So you end up with all these questions and you think, yeah. oh, we're missing something here. The commentators are constantly talking about something that we don't seem to cover in coaching. Yeah. And then um, as a young coach, I'd coaching the players I mentioned before, I'd worked with Keith Reynolds as a mentor. Uh, Keith was a fantastic mentor and still, still is. And um, he, he would say, how do they get on in the match? And I say, well, you know, we've got to work on the short forehand or we've got to work on defence wide to backhand or the first serve is still, you know, not the wide first serve's not working. He said, and do the parents watch the match, Alistair? And I said, yes. He said, have you asked them what they think? And I thought of, no, why would I sort of think? I'm, you know, I'm the coach. And he said, why don't you ask them? Get their opinion. And so I asked people like, Claire's dad, Ron Carter, who was very insightful into it, and others, Kay Wakefield, David Wakefield. And, you know, they start saying strange things to me after the match, like she was going very well until her hair bubble fell out, or he was going great until that national coach turned up to watch, or he was going badly, but then his mate turned up on the next court, and that seemed to relax him and did better after that, or broke a string in his favourite racket, 
or the weather changed and they had to go indoors. At no point were they talking about percentage of first serves, attacking the short ball, um, any of that. And so the, it, it, it got me thinking. And what they were talking about is what as we as parents, as the biggest supporters of our kids know, is that we're kind of emotionally attached and so emotionally invested in how they do we're sensing the good patches we're sensing and locked into the bad patches and hoping they'll turn around and they'll find their games again and we're, we're realizing what the turning points are after the match when we look back so that was really a, a light bulb moment that was probably the biggest really uh, in terms of trying yeah. to understand flow momentum and what is momentum Momentum is hard to define, but it's the feeling of things going for you and against you. So I work a lot with Ana Suarez, who's a sports psychologist who um, did six years at BTT, their full-time sports psychologist, now Southampton Football Club. Um, and well, I almost turned to leave, actually. But, um, and we, she's done all the academic research. So we've got a lot of academic research on momentum. It's all evidence-based. But in trying to define it, I tend to go back to the simple phrases that we can use as coaches. So um, I remember talking about different definitions to my wife who plays tennis, a county player, and she's doing the dishes at the sink. And I said, what do you think momentum is? She said, oh, that's easy. It's just the feeling of things going for you or against you. And I thought, well, yeah, that's pretty good. That's the kitchen sink definition. It is the feeling of things going for you or against a player. And beyond that, I would say, it's at its most obvious when the use momentum surges. That's what attracts our attention when there's a surge in momentum, when things, the match turns on its head and it appears that everything's going better and better for one player and worse and worse for the other player. That surge in momentum is what captivates us. And you see it most when people are making comebacks and it's almost like there's a different player on the pitch, uh, on the court rather, and you feel like things have changed. And it's definitely got connotations and it comes from things like a snowball rolling down a hill and getting bigger and bigger or a runaway train that has momentum that you can't stop. But the difference in sport is that you've got to take both counts, both sides into account. So it's, there's always a competitor, an opposition who's able to affect the momentum as well as you are. And so it's a bit like that train track being able to be turned on its head and the train running the other way or the snowball, the mountain turning as well. It's not just a one way thing. So that's momentum and that difference that that feeds into and affects the journey of the match, the pattern of the match, which is that, you know, you'd stand back and you'd look at the from perhaps from the stand, which which way is the match going at the moment? What's the journey of the match? Where's the match flow? And then you get these surges of momentum, which can change it. Um, so that, that would be the broad sort of description and understanding of it. And yeah. the only thing I would add to that is what we want got to do is link it to something that's, that's more tangible. Yeah. And this is where we have to say, look, it's not a magic that comes through from the air. It's not because some wind has changed, you've got momentum, it's linked to performances and it's linked to your performance against their performance. Because what we see when momentum changes is your performance getting better and better and mine getting worse and worse for a period of time. And that's, you know, therefore, that's a, a really important point that momentum is linked to performances and how players adapt and think during a match. I'm pleased you said that last bit because... 
if not, I was going to challenge you. Um, but because I, I think that's my pet peeve, you know, and I, and, and I actually think football commentators are a lot worse than tennis commentators. You know, mm. I think I think football commentators deliver it as a magic portion yeah. of, you know, Brentford have, have got no chance. They've lost all the momentum and it's, mm. but, it, but it's, it's so, it's so subjective and it's so fluffy that the the objectiveness I think is the bit that certainly interests me in it, and and, and I'm sure yourself, you know, in in, yeah. in terms of what you've just said there, because I, I guess from my very simple naked eye, if I'm talking about a football match or tennis match, you do mm. get a feeling, you know, you, you get strong feelings when, when you're watching, but ultimately if you remove those feelings and you just look at the the objectiveness of what is happening, one player is probably not moving their feet as much as they were. You know, one player is maybe not getting strong and balanced behind the ball as much as they were, you know, and and, and the other player has a spring in their step. So is now getting to the ball a little bit quicker, which mm. the, ultimately that is what is happening. Exactly like you say, the performances have changed, <laughs> you know, for whatever they have changed. reason. And, and that leads, that really leads to, um, I mean, one of the definitions of momentum is, is a feeling of progressing towards your goal. And that's what you'll hear when you hear a, a, about a political process or a, a climate change, momentum's building for climate change. It means a series of things that seem to be positive have happened in short succession. Yeah. And if you're losing momentum, a series of things which are negative are happening quickly or nothing positive is happening as it was before. So you need to use your performance to be able to create those positive things in your favour in order to build momentum. So I think you could think about it as well as progressing in a match. How are you progressing in a match? And the best way to do that is through your performance. But more, more importantly, probably... The performance against, sorry, your performance against their performance. So I think yeah. if you're wanting to control momentum, you're thinking about your game and how you can improve your game. Your game versus their game. Where, where can I apply pressure to uh, exploit your weaknesses? And then turning points and events of the match. Where is there something in the game? That's the third element, the game that I could capitalize. You've just missed an opportunity, set point, and you missed a volley. Am I aware of that? Do I know the implications of that? So that I can you know, increase my intensity, make you play more balls at that time and see the opportunity. So I think in, in terms of controlling the performance, you are looking at your game, of course, I've got to get more first serves in, I've got to start attacking a little bit more. My game versus your game, how can I apply it to you and, and create a gap between my performance and your performance so we can get that surge in momentum where you fail to see a way to win and I get better and better seeing my way to win. But also these significant match events, bad line calls, missed opportunities, um, changing the weather, broken line strings, which could affect you and give me an opportunity or affect me if I respond in the wrong way and give you an opportunity. I think we we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the call, Alistair, but obviously the listeners didn't didn't hear that, so I I, I don't want to not mention it today. It's the, and I've thought about this the last couple of weeks a lot. Is 
how it makes sense in my head is when things are going against us, mm -hmm. we, the perception that it's going against us, we are having stronger internal experiences towards the negative, you know, ultimately mm -hmm. experiencing more negative thoughts, more negative emotions. Yeah. And, and the word we use at the Academy is uh, your ability. And that's the definition we have of mental toughness is mm -hmm. your ability, your, your ability to tolerate, <laughs> to tolerate those emotions mm -hmm. and still, and, and then shift your mind onto mm -hmm. something most helpful in that situation no mm -hmm. matter how you feel you know and it's it's almost like the feeling the emotional mm -hmm. bit in yeah. most people will mm -hmm. will lead to a, a decline in performance yes if, yeah. if, if they're unable to tolerate the situation and the emotions that they are that they are dealing with so so i guess my question to you because it's it's one thing to i guess have the um, the understanding, you know, the understanding of what momentum is and match flows and changes, but how, how are you able to apply mm -hmm. techniques to be able to help people to, to have those shifts um, in your favor? Yeah, of course. Well, I think, I think, first of all, it's important to say that your performance, we know about the four performance factors. is technical, tactical, mental, physical. The two that you can change in a match are technical and mental. That's not to say physical and technical won't change, but it's usually as a result of uh, uh, mental skills or, or your mindset. So you, you can't become, you can't have more VO2 max. You can't consciously change your VO2 match. Yeah. max in a match but you can through determination run for longer yeah uh, you can't change your technique if you've got a semi-western grip you're not going to start playing with an eastern grip if you're double-handed backhand you're not going to become single-handed slice as a, a you know as a basic idea yeah. you may become more fluid but again that's some mental relaxation yeah. small so small you, small adaptations that's it small it? adaptations and that and that's it you might yeah. block a return of first serve yeah so we're in the tactical area and we're in the mental area. Yeah. So practically, um, you, you are looking to create this gap between you and the opposition, a gap in performance. And so that is through tactical adaptations and mental adaptations. And one of the things we've done to help coaches and players uh, is written a, a whole online course. And that online course, we go through the understanding, like you said, the understanding of momentum, the framework for understanding, but then the practical tips uh, to affect momentum. And they're all to do with tactical choices, tactical options, and mental options, and a way to think through the match. So the change events, how do you stand back, see the bigger picture, and think your way to win? And so that's you know, that's all um, in the online course. We've just done one for a 10-week program for coaches as well. And uh, it's all available at coachingedgeuk.com. But as practical tips to coaches here on the podcast, I would say you've got to look at adjustments tactically and adjustments mentally to improve your performance. So you mentioned emotions, the um, the idea of the match running against you and the negative emotions, I think, you know, we're in the mental skills area, and that's where Anna Suarez, who's doing a PhD in turning points, would be really interested in uh, the, the, the turning points aspects of momentum because that's significant match events. Now, one of the things we would say from those match events is it's not 
if it's a turning point, it's, um, if a match event comes along, it's not a turning point. It's a potential turning point. It's only ever a turning point, depending on your reaction to it. So therefore, being able to use mental skills, committing to um, keeping your standard high after significant match events actually can be measured. So one of the things we do in the um, British University team is we have um, shot of the day for fun at the end of our international matches, but start introducing test of the day as well. And that's where we feel a significant match event has resulted in a significant test of the day. And therefore, we, we get the players to vote on what they saw and why their reaction was so good. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So I remember in uh, Taiwan, Mark Whitehouse was playing a match against number five seed and he, he got a break and he was serving to go 3-1 up in the first set. Uh, game point to him to go 3-1 up. Second serve and the guy from Denmark shanked it into the stands. So he's 3-1 up, except for a late call of foot fault. So he goes from being 3-1 up to 2-1 still back to juice because it's double fault. So that's, you know, that's probably a bronze level test. And you can categorize the test however you want. The idea of categorizing these kind of challenges around significant match events comes from watching Andy and Johnny, my son, playing FIFA or whatever games they were playing online. And they you can come in at whatever level you want. You can come at level one, two, three, four, and you can be beginner level, intermediate, or gold, silver, bronze, whatever. So categorizing these tests, we categorize them at bronze, silver, and gold. So that would be kind of a, you know, Mark recovered and won the game. So it's a little battle, a little significant match event that we can celebrate irrespective of the score starts to put a, an emphasis and a value on winning the battles, the mini battles in matches, even if we don't win the war. Another example, which was the gold level example, was when we were playing uh, the US college team in the final in 2017. And the final of the world championships, we'd never beaten them before. They hadn't lost for seven years. And we go in matches, we are now three to up. And Jack Findle Hawkins and Johnny O'Mara are in a battle in a men's doubles to win gold. Win the first set, and we go two all in the second set, and it's sudden death juice. The American uh, first serve in, Findle Hawkins plays a beautiful chip return cross court. It catches the top of the net and just falls over a dead drop let cord into the trams. Red Licky, who's playing for the American, slides forward, rack it out. He's only just going to get it. If he does get it, we're on top of the net. Elmara and Finlay Hawkins on top of the net. Um, we're as good as won the point, except for the ball kid sees a ball in front of him. Oh, there's a ball and picks it up off the American's racket. Umpire says, play a let. Sudden death juice. American serves a big serve down with 3-2 down. So we go from being 3-2 up in the blink of an eye to 3-2 down. And we talked about in the, in the match, uh, you know, in the team meetings about it's not, we're not going to judge you on what happens. We could judge you on your response to what happens because obviously players playing for Britain are nervous of letting themselves down, letting them uh, team down, et cetera, et cetera. So they want to know what they're going to be judged on. So we say, you're not judged on winning or losing. You're judged on how you respond to whatever happens in the match. So I thought we we're going to have to have that talk because you're in the chair as they come down the sit next to you, but we didn't have to have that talk because uh, Omar, who's a hell of a character, um, immediately sat down and he said, we're not going to let that bother us. 
don't worry, kid. End of. And that and that was that. And they, you know, we they had a drink and we had a couple of small conversations. But you know, those guys direct their own tennis, and they got up and went out. Health serve, broke serve, health serve, and we won the gold medal. But that that we talk about that, and we still talk about that yeah. as a as a gold standard response to a match event, and therefore this test of the day. And I think that can be carried through in coaches. You know, when when has your player done something they've never done before? If they've lost yeah. a set on the tiebreak and then won the match, for example, what are the yeah. tests you can think of? Very good. And that that one, that example there is very much almost the definition of mental toughness, isn't it? You know, that was the that was the bit that that they did. If I if I share a quick quick one with you, and then you can you can analyze this one for 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 me and also for. For, for the listeners. So I was in a, in a match last week and uh, a player, young player playing very well, uh, good high level match, five, four up in the first set, um, you know, and, and, and tactically the match was probably going how the player on our side wanted it to go. You know, it was, it was a bit of a bit of a hitting battle and always felt he maybe had the edge in terms of being able to out hit the kid and the kid then just completely changed tactically completely you know and and then moonballed for the next 20 minutes um only moonballed and yeah. um it had the desired effect because what happened was now the player that we were watching started to look uncomfortable started to to showcase a kind of body bad body language started to struggle a little bit mentally. It didn't adapt tactically to that, you know. Didn't didn't solve the problem, you know. Didn't take on a drive volley. Didn't find find ways of doing it. Um, and then, even though that set was a seven five loss, it was it was long games. Mm. But then the second set just very quickly went went away 6-1 and in the second set the boy didn't actually went back to hitting wasn't moonballing anymore but now had got the mental edge and <laughs> the player we were watching had, <laughs> had ultimately lost their mind a little bit and and had gone away from their processes <laughs> and 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 I guess that would be a classic surge snowball effect that, yeah. that happened and it and it started with a tactical change so if you're the coach of this player that it happened to how would you take them through a journey to try and help them in that area well the good news is there were five four up in the first place and i think that's uh, that's important and then i always remember something that i heard at a conference from an american coach a long time ago if somebody changes tactics on you they're going to their B, plan b because nobody goes, I'll keep my plan A up my sleeve in case I leave, in this case, in case I start losing. So immediately they're going to their plan B. So that's good news. And then I think it's the speed at which you spot the change and adapt to it is, is critical. Um, because what's happened there is the player who's changed to plan B is really trying it for a little while to see if it works and they need to see immediate success now if the player can spot that and has got an answer to it and immediately plays a couple of dry volleys they probably would that would be the end of their i'll have a go at this uh if they you know so there is a 
an, an importance of spotting the change and then quickly responding to it whilst they still feel good about it. Yep. So there's that. But then there's the whole um, having lost the first set, actually, the, this what happened in the second set and how, um, how could your player have responded? Because it sounds to me like there was a, it was going his way. There was an intervention, a change, and then it went against him. So a classic mountain shape in terms yeah. of a momentum chart. So it's you can look at this bit on the way up and the, the bit that changed, but you also need to look at how can you recover yeah. because that on the way down, uh, you need to be able to do to him what he did to you. I He hadn't found a way, but he found a way. Yeah. Well, how can you respond? But I do think it's one of the hardest things to do in sport is when you are winning. And we always say stick to a winning game. If somebody finds a way of closing that performance gap and putting you in more of a straitjacket to actually say, well, what I was doing is no longer working. I need to adapt to what they've done. It's a difficult thing to do that. So I think he's... You know, I think I think it's it's one to recognise it is difficult, but I think the the question is why what was the response? Why was there no response in that second set the same way that the boy was be able to respond in the first set? Yeah. Would be uh, one one way of looking at it. And then of course, you know, the mental skills that stop the performance from dipping when momentum's against you. It's against all of us. We all know how it feels. It feels horrible. You're running in treacle. Your shots are not working. Particularly if they were working before, you feel bad. You want to, you, you rush because you want to return to what was happening before. Whereas actually, if we go back to that definition of uh, momentum in a peace process or climate change, you lose momentum when things, you know, things, the gap between good things becomes longer. And that's what you need to instill on the opposition. You need to take as much time to get your own head together. And if bad things are happening, you, you want to slow down bad things happening and start make good things happening for you. So there is an element of, okay, take a, uh, your maximum 20 seconds between points. And the routine when momentum's against you becomes different than the routine than when it's for you, obviously within the rules, but you're yeah. still allowed to take a that bit longer when things are going against you. Very good. It's a fascinating subject. I'm, I'm conscious that I, I want to move the conversation on. I don't because I'd, I'd love to talk to you for hours on, on this because I think it's, I think it's such a, it is, it's an untapped area, certainly in the, in the forefront of what we see, you know, in, in, in the, in the public eye and, you know, we, there's there's all sorts out there on how to have the right thrown action on the serve. There's all sorts out there on, you know, what type of grips to use on the forehand. But an area that uh, I'm sure everyone listening will will agree is so fundamental and so important to every tennis match that ever happens. You know, we can all see it. You know, when you're when you've watched matches for a long time, you can almost feel it. You can feel it before there's even a score change. Often mm -hmm. you can just yeah. start to you start yeah. to get a bit of a well. Feeling. Just just on the scores, it's, I know you want to move on, Dan, but the score is so important because you know when I used to watch Carlisle United on CFAX, if you remember that, or if you're watching it online and you've only got the score to look at, or you're at Wimbledon watching the scoreboard, but you're not in the stadium and you see the scoreboard change, you've no idea what's going on. Nil nil, Carlisle, you know, eighty five minutes, eighty seven minutes, yeah. ninety minutes, 
you don't know. You don't know if they're attacking. You don't know who's got the momentum. You don't know what's happening. And this, this is important to understand our scoring system in tennis, which we cover a lot in the online course as well. The three-tiered nature of it, points make games, games make sets, sets make matches. It's very different from any other scoring system. And it has big implications for how we coach because you're brought to a pinnacle and you're dropped and asked to start again continually. Yeah, it, it brings natural natural breaks doesn't it to momentum you know that, that was turning points you can yeah you can play rubbish you can be you can be winning for an hour and a half and lose for 10 minutes and you're in trouble you can yeah. be six four you know you can you never have lost one nil two nil one love two love two one three two four two five four and then you win the first set, you win the second set, the same again, three, two, four, three, five, four, 40, 30. You miss the smash when you should have put it away. You miss the next two points and lose for 10 minutes. And you now you had match point 10 minutes after you're now feeling like you're in a third set with momentum against you. So you've won for an hour and a half, lost for 10 minutes. I mean, it's crazy. It's a crazy sport. And that's though, I think for me, that bit there, and it goes into the realities of sport, of the sport that I know Keith Reynolds is, is massive on as well. And it's, you go into the reality of that sport. I harp on all the time to coaches, players, parents, know your sport. Because I almost look at that as rather than the champion who is the set and five, four up. Okay, you have to understand the sport. But the challenger who is the set and five, four down the match point down has to understand. And I, one of my favorite sayings is you're never more than 10 minutes out of a match. 10 yeah. good minutes will mm -hmm. always get you back into a tennis match. And yeah, you know, I, I happen to be on court uh, at side of the court when Tara Moore, and it's gone down in like history. I think it's oh, it's six love, five love. Yeah. What? So at, at Sunderland, I was there and, wow. and you, you, you started to feel it. You were wow. like, oh my God, the girls should have won that game. Oh, five, yeah. one. Ooh, ooh, five, two. Yeah. Oh my, oh my it's, goodness, uh, five, three. Oh my, and you when, just, yeah. When did, when did, when did the oh my goodness come in? Five, three or five, two or five, yeah, four? Yeah, I think maybe even five, two. It was, there was definitely, there was definitely, uh, there was, because uh, actually, I, I think the player I was coaching was not the next match. But they were the next match, so so I had a very keen eye on that match because I was going, okay, well, they, they, if this finishes, mm. it's an hour, hour and a half until they play, yeah, you know. And so I, as I started to have my eye on it, it yeah. was definitely there was definitely I think a feeling at around five two, you know, and just just the nature of the way it happened, and you could see a little bit of visible tension. That had, that had come in, you know, really and it was amazing. And that's, you know, it's, 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 it's that gap in performance again, isn't it? Because it's like that. And it doesn't take much for that person to go up a little bit, you know, 10% and that person to drop 10% and you're starting to feel it. And people think five loves a big score, but, you know, you don't want to be five love and then it's five three with doubts coming into your mind. It's just, you mentioned Keith Reynolds, just to finish on his, his point about momentum and knowing about it. He said, um, you can swim in the river, but if you don't understand there's a current in the river, you're in trouble and there's a current in the river. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Let me share a thought I have and bat me away. Uh, tell me I'm wrong. You know, put me in my place. I have no problem with that. 
the surge, you know, and when I when I think of a surge, you know, it's it's it. I think of quite a large range of of, of change in 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 performance, but often I often think it is linked to emotion, you know. So yeah. and uh, Josh Ward Hibbert, and I'm sure he won't mind me sharing this, and I know you know Josh Alistair, mm. is uh, we had a, a a good conversation a couple of years ago because. He, he was coming from an individual sport of tennis to then mm. move into now playing a professional team sport in, in basketball. Yeah. And he, he talked about how the range of emotions that he used to have as a tennis player mm. was so lot, so big. You know, if he mm. was, if he was up, he was, mm-hmm. he was right up. And if mm-hmm. he was down, he was right down. Whereas yeah. what he's found being a part of a team sport is if he's down, he's kicked up the backside and quite quickly establishes himself on a bit more level grounding. And if he's too up, he gets to kick up the backside and told to come back down. And he quite, so his range of where he's at doesn't, Mm -hmm. doesn't go up too, too much or go down too much, Mm -hmm. which, which I guess, which I guess might lead to there being less surges in momentum in a team sport than an individual sport. Just a little theory that's just mm. popped in my head. I don't know whether the conclusion's right. Certainly the, the, the third, first bit is interesting. It's fascinating because you've got your teammates, haven't you? And your teammates are around you. You're going to, and that is the, I'm not going to say team sports are easy, but they're easy compared to, to uh, tennis because yeah. you can get substituted. You can play badly and still win in, in team yeah. sports. And you've got your teammates to pull you up or bring you down a bit like Josh is saying there. I, I think there's some dramatic surges, though. I think if you look at uh, American, if you look at American football and that huge surge there was in was it yeah. 2017 when the Patriots came back from 25-3 down and it was just one-way traffic. Yeah. If you look at um, football, you can look at periods of domination. Uh, if you watch the League Cup final on Sunday, the Carabao Cup final, Liverpool against Chelsea, there was you know, periods of domination for both sides. It, it was definitely that way. Um, if you look at the huge surge of momentum when Liverpool beat AC Milan in the Champions League final yeah. from three to, and they scored three goals in six minutes. Yeah. So I think, so I think it's really interesting about the. It's it's definitely I would agree with you. It's linked to emotion because emotion can destroy your performance if you or, or fire your performance the other way. Um, but I think probably there are big surges in, in those team sports. And, and um, some, yeah, we use examples in the online course from golf and the surges in the match play event over the Ryder Cup and the Solheim Cups, huge surges, people talking about momentum, how it's switched, people using momentum in that situation as well. Captains stacking their team in a certain way to build momentum, you know, yeah. get the good players building momentum out first. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's across all sports really, and team sports. I think there's something in the nature of us being perhaps pack animals, and you know, leaders setting the energy and people following the leader, whether that's in a, a sport or you know, fighting or war or whatever. If there's a strong leader and everybody follows their response to match events, I think uh, they they almost take on a that's where it gets close to an individual sport yeah. because the, the team follows the leaders. And if the leaders are responsive, responding well, then momentum goes very often for them. 
Uh, and, and the surges only really happen when there's a poor response. And for a real surge to happen, one side's performance has to go up and the other has to go down. But that doesn't mean it has to happen. It's like a running race. If we're in a running race, Dan, and, and we're sprinting and you, I kick to get away from you and you stay with me and I kick and you stay with me and I kick and you think I can't, I can't stay with him, and you go away, I will relax and go further, and then that, that gap will appear, that surge will appear. But if I kick and you stay with me again, I think I can't shake this guy off, and my performance will go down, and you might surge ahead, because that's that mental ascendancy element to it. That's, you know, that, that surge will only happen if there is a double change in performance, one going up, one going down, which is why match events, momentum, match flow has to be linked to performance. Very good. Well, my football team currently have momentum, so I'm gonna yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna run with it. I won't bore the listeners with with why, but there is there there is again in that instance it's not a magic thing. You know, no. there's there's serious process and performance performance yeah. behind it and i'm going to enjoy it i hope it's going to keep going for a for, oh, may that continue. for, for a long time my yeah. my last bit and i would imagine i'm a i'm a parent um i have momentum shifts on an almost hourly basis with my children you know i love them i hate them i love them i hate them i want to you know like it, it, you know and i'm sure you i'm sure you're only frustrated <laughs> with them i'm sure you never hate them. <laughs> never hate them no it's the it's the wrong words but i certainly have some strong momentum surges when i'm trying to get my little one to bed um <laughs> you know that i don't seem to win very often but um how how has it been you know you've your boys have gone through uh, a, a tennis journey, you know, they've obviously got more than just a tennis journey, but you have been a tennis parent for 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 many years. Um, you know, so many people that are listening to to these podcasts are, are tennis parents. You know, some mm. of them that are just starting their journey, some of them that have been through, you know, already with numerous numerous of their their kids as well. How how was how was that journey? And uh, I know it's an ongoing journey, but how was was that as a as a tennis coach, someone who's so heavily involved, to to then find their find your boys playing the sport that you're so heavily involved in? So much more difficult than coaching. I mean, like a thousand times more difficult. It's very very difficult because you it's hard as a parent to be so objective and long term. You are connected emotionally to it obviously you want the best but um but you have to stand back and you have to kind of find it uh, you know find that sort of objectiveness but we're you're a big tennis family i mean we've all played county county week and it's myself my wife and the two boys have all played county 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 week for a senior a senior level and um and so we have lots of discussions and i think that the difficult things have been the system um, particularly the system they went through, the rating system where you had to win, you know, some somebody playing in Hertfordshire calls a bad line call at five all in the match tiebreak. And that is the last chance of that ratings run you could have had to go up. I mean, all that pressure is is horrible. Um, but you know, the, I think the really the good things is we have a phrase in the family, every match has a story. So you never, you yeah. never. The, the boys will never tell me the result until they've told me the story, which I, I always makes me laugh and I'm pleased about because, A, you have to 
they make you wait till they tell you whether they've won or lost, but it does show that they do kind of value the the journey of the match and yeah. what's gone on during the match. And sometimes it ends up with them winning and sometimes it ends up with them losing, but um, at least they appreciate that that side. But the they played a lot of football when they were younger, both of them good footballers. Didn't We didn't really commit to playing, be, being a proper tennis parent, so they became good players because they chose to. I didn't want to hothouse them. They didn't play more than 10 miles away from um, Nottingham for a long time. They played, they travelled for the football and did for tennis, in fact. Um, so I think um, it's great they both ended up choosing tennis because it's a lot harder than football. Football, you just drop your child off and it's very often taken by another parent to the match. And even if they play badly, the team wins. They feel good. The team celebrates together, whereas you're on your own. But... The other thing is, I'd say as a parent, it, 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 I do recognise, again, what Keith Reynolds has said about the value of the things you gain from competing, critical thinking, emotional control, ability to recover from disappointments, time management, standing up for yourself, striving for excellence, working part of the team, self-reflection, goal setting. These are all amazing transferable life skills that we get from tennis, as well as you know, a social circle, friends for life uh, and some great memories. So I think it's it's tough as a tennis parent, but when you're able to stand back and see what they've gained from it, you feel it's been a terrific education. And you are heavily involved with British universities. You have one boy that has gone through the British university system. Yep. You've had one boy that's gone through the US university system and mm. it's a it's not debate's probably the wrong word but you know for years and years u.s colleges has, has been the 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 golden stamp of of universities of, of what you do sure. yeah. uh, do you feel that the uk universities are, are catching up is the goal to catch up is there is, what what is the aim and what can you tell people about Great Britain universities and why why that could be a good route for some players? Well, it's a good option. I think that, um, you listen, there's no way we'd run down US colleges. There's the fantastic experiences over there and, uh, you know, there's the tremendous setup. I think what we're keen to do is just develop our own unique brand and uh, you stand in the marketplace for people who want to choose it. And I think that it's fa- it was fascinating having one boy go through one and one through the other I think what uh, the the attractions of America would be, America's a pretty cool place to be. I think there is that. I think you can get very good scholarships there. Uh, although, I, you know, I believe the agents are saying, you know, you're better off with a budget of ten dollars or $15,000, which makes the cost similar to over here, particularly with the loan. Um, what if we get over here for our unique selling points? Well, I think Loughborough, Bath, Stirling, Nottingham, Exeter, Leeds, Beckett, Cardiff, Bristol, they're all able to um, offer something, Loughborough, of course, uh, something which is high-level facilities, training a couple of times a day, matches on a Wednesday. We've got a national league, which is broadcast by the Tennis Channel, uh, and that level is a strong level. You'd get ATP, WTA-ranked players at the top of that. Uh, um, and if they have not got a ranking now, they've been as high as some of them been as high as 500 in the world previously. So <clears throat> the level at the top is is very, very good. But then 
we've got a workforce development program as well. So obviously everybody wants to win Wimbledon to play professionally on the tour, great option. But we focus on training a lot, a very good competitive program. I should have said Wednesdays is match day in British universities for yeah. all sports. So you play a match every Wednesday. There's 365 teams across our 100 different universities playing from October to March every Wednesday. And But the workforce side of things, we've got six coach development centres based at universities. We've got uh, two national academies. We've got um, people, companies linked into our universities and about 800 to 1,000 players playing more than eight hours a week. And therefore, we want to, within our university setup, we want to really have different strands of workforce development. So we've got coaching, uh, we've got tennis development, we've got media, we've got performance analysis, sports psychology, um, and all these officiating. And we've got structures and uh, shall we say processes, trying to think conveyor belts really for people who are interested in those different to get mentoring, to get experience on the ground and then develop and get high level opportunities. So we'll take some of our students with our British team, um, the event management group come to see how the big event in France is run, sponsored by PMP Paribas, the Master U event. We'll take, um, if there's coaching opportunities, we'll try and get coaching opportunities. S&C, we'll try and find S&C opportunities. So they get internal opportunities, internal mentoring, then a pathway through to you know, high-level external experiences. So I think there's definitely the playing side. There's definitely the workforce side. Uh, and then I think, you know, there's the, just the pathways through. So anybody who's been to American college now, there's a lot of people thinking, I'll come back and carry on my playing and do a part-time master's degree. That's a great opportunity to carry on playing. There's no, there's, there's no for the British universities, there's not the same um, restrictions and not the same uh, can't play professionally or, or can only play for four years without being redshirted over here so you can play four years in America and come back and play another two or three years over here and have that pretty much paid for well all the tennis training is, is pretty much free in the universities here so yeah so it's it's a different uh, it's a different model probably great opportunities now with the recent LTA changes for more pro series levels in the UK pro league and British tour to play around the team matches to build yep. your world because there's so many opportunities here to do that now so that might be a, a distinct and different uh, offer from British universities so yeah so that's I think it's you know it, it's what it's something that we get on very well with American colleges and American you know the ITA and we have good links with them but we're just looking to provide people with an option and make sure people know about the option of either studying here undergraduate or coming back and studying here for a master's degree you are very good at piecing things together. You, uh, you know, you, you, you said that earlier and that was very well pieced together and, you know, in the different buckets, you know, very easy to understand. My challenge on it, and, and, and please tell me if this is not fair, is my perception from the outside, and I am on the outside now, is the governing body as a whole doesn't seem to promote GB universities as much as they promote US universities. Now that's a perception that could be completely wrong. And, and, I, and I guess 
for somebody who owns an academy who is feeding i'm i, I guess where where the feeders to yeah. to to these pathways you know yeah. <clears throat> I, I i i constantly have information about us universities i constantly have coaches speaking to me about about coming i don't really know or understand the gb setup well enough to mm -hmm. to be able to with authority say this is this is the route for yeah. you yeah i think it's it's a great point and we're trying to change it. i do three days a week just so everybody understands there's three days a week on this role uh you know british universities and um yeah it, it's something that needs to change and is changing so if you were to go on the lta website there's an online course now which can take you through the whole uh, different elements that the British universities provide. So that's players and parents that can directly access that. Um, and you just type in British universities into the LTA search and you'll find it. So that'll take you through everything you need to know and the, and the choices when making a university, some of the advantages for Britain, some of the advantages for America, things to consider. And I think that's, uh, there's that. I think there is a a wider recognition now of players coming through. So you've got players like Lloyd Glasspool, who's studying for a Masters at Loughborough. We've got our pro player coach with Julian Cash, George Houghton, Freya Christie's been through it, Liv Nichols has been through that, Lissy Barnett's been through that. You've yeah. got Johnny Omari, got Sterling with a very strong programme with people coming back from the States to do Masters degrees there. Um, you and Moore being the number one at the moment. So I think... You're right. I think it needs more people to shout about it and promote it. I think there is a, I think if there's a, a um, an area that we need to be better in governing body point of view, it, it is more people talking about it more often. But also, I think as a governing body, you very often want to present a neutral sort of BBC approach that these are the advantages here, these are the advantages here. Whereas what's happening with the american colleges you've got agents who have a uh, um, you know who are paid um, some of whom have yeah. america in the title um to get people to america so that you, you almost have a sort of a, a series of agents representing one sector who are you know, have a finan financial interest in promoting that sector not not all because i think even with the agents they're recognizing more the british university yeah. route as well um but you know, we need to wrap that up and make sure that people do know about it. So I think it's a very fair point and, and certainly uh, something that we're working to try and change. Um, but there's no kind of one agent, as it were, or six or seven or eight agents who are paid to try yeah. and get who have a financial interest to get people into British universities. Because actually, as a parent, you probably don't need you just need the information. You probably don't need an agent to do it. Whereas America, you could do it on your own. It's not impossible, but you probably, it's a bit like having a uh, an agent to sell your house, an estate agent, rather than selling it yourself. You probably just got yeah. that bit more um, security if you do. So I think that, yeah, that's probably why. But yeah, you're right. It's it's a battle that's continued being fought. I think having the the National League, which is a high level on the tennis channel, is yeah. a big step forward. That's happened this year. So people can see the level. I think um, if you follow it on Twitter at Brit Uni Tennis or on Instagram or you look on the LTA website, it's all there. Um, I guess we just there's not enough people pushing it in the face yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as, uh, as maybe there is with the US college side of things. Um, 
Yeah, but I, I, that is a, a fair challenge, and I think it's some that you know something we could keep working on. Yeah, because I, I, I just, I just think there's a place. I think there's, there's, and, and obviously, and you're saying all those names, which is fantastic, and not just those names. It's something that's obviously worked well for so many people, but we we don't hear enough about it. I, my personal, I'm a U.S. college boy. I went. But I, but I also feel that that market's getting quite saturated, you know, and I, and I, and I think a lot of people are, are now just going to America to go to America and, and not necessarily matching their aim up with, with their action of what they want. And, you know, we just had a player actually um, sat down with me last week and uh, a boy from Sweden who's at the academy out in Spain. And he said, look, Dan, I've, I've made the decision We've had a lot of talks. I've made the decision I'm going to go to university in Barcelona because I, I've realised I'm not going to be good enough to be a tennis player. I'm really passionate about the course that I want to take in business. And, yeah. and, and I still have the chance to carry on playing my tennis in yeah. Barcelona. So I've made that decision. And, and I just don't think there's enough people that are necessarily thinking a little bit more deeply <laughs> about mm-hmm. about what they want and what they want to achieve. And, yeah, and, I think and, that's a great point. That's a great point. And that's why the, the, the directly to the LTA website again, there's a whole course on making the decision because some people want to be as close to home as possible. Some people want to be as far away yeah. as possible. You've got the course to decide, the finances, the tennis, the coach, the philosophy of the coach, all these things to consider. Yeah, well, Alistair, we'll put. I'll I'll be in touch afterwards, and we'll put all of those links on the on the podcast show notes. You know, so any anybody that has an interest in in momentum and the courses that that Alistair has has brought together with his great team, you know, all of that will be will be up, and and also all of the information into the GB University uh, courses, how you do it. All all of those links will be in the show notes as well. Great, thanks, Dan. The last bit, the the bit that people are really here for, the 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 quick fire round. I've noticed looking at the time, there's nothing quick fire about me and you, Alistair, when we get into a conversation. So so let's see. This is a challenge for us. Um, mm. Serve or return? Return. Forehand or backhand? Backhand. Favorite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. I'm going to preempt this next question and I'm going to take you back to 1994. And it's funny what sticks in your mind, but I remember as a, as a just turned 14 year old, maybe even 13 year old sitting, having lunch with yourself. I think maybe John Hicks, um, we were in Italy and this, the topic of conversation was, if you could go to dinner with any two people, dead or alive, who would they be? And I think I remember one of your answers from 27 years ago. So I am curious whether it's the same answer 27 years on. So that is the question. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm going to go Michael Palin and... Julia Roberts, and I suspect that's not the same, but you might want to give me a clue as to what it what I might have said. The one that I remember was a was a German tennis player 
Steffi Graf. Steffi Graf. Yeah, I hesitated on Steffi, and I hesitated on that. I think, yeah, I, close, close. So you Steffi, were right. So she was in there. So that was yeah. so Steffi Graf was the was the one I remember in '94. So sorry, Steffi, if you're listening. But oh you've my been, goodness, you've been, Steffi, you've... if you are listening, <laughs> <laughs> we can change that decision very quickly. <laughs> Clay courts or hard courts? Clay courts. UK university or US university? <laughs> UK university. <laughs> In, indoors or outdoors? Hmm. Hmm. Indoors. You have to. Hey, if you've said UK university, you've got to then say indoors. True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> Let, let's or no let's? Let's. Medical timeout or not? No medical timeout. Singles or doubles? Doubles. Rafa or Roger? Roger. If you could have one rule change in tennis, what would it be? I think uh, get rid of the warm-up, I would say. And I think being fit, that, that medical timeout, I think being fit, I mean, obviously, you don't want to be um, putting players in danger, but being fit enough is part of carrying on and being fit enough, isn't it? It's, you know, I don't think you should be allowed to go and get a massage or, or, or those kind of things. So I think, um, but more than that, I'd say get rid of the warm-up. Let's get straight into it. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Well, I would say sports psychologist Anna Suarez is very good. I think uh, if you are going to look for somebody who's worked practically in sports psychology across a range, uh, she'd have some interesting stories. I could suggest others, but I would naturally go to Anna. Let's get it. Let's get her on. Alistair, thank you. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, Dan. Uh, thank you for your insights. Thank you for your, your knowledge. You know, I, I've got a little, um, I, I, when I do these podcasts, when I have these talks, I have a notepad and pen and I always have it with me. I, I don't know. I kind of think a bit better when it's in my hand. And what I often find myself doing is just, jotting something down as maybe a topic that I want to maybe pick up later in the chat. Mm. What I found myself doing today was jotting some things down that will really help me as a coach and as a tennis parent, you know? Right. And, and so, so, so thank you so much for, for those brilliant insights, for sharing your experiences. Um, I'd love to pick the phone up at another time to delve into the topic even further. Um, but, but top man, good luck with it all. And, and thank Thanks, you very Dan. much for coming on. No, it's great. And, and well done with the podcast. Just terrific to see you doing so well in this. And uh, yeah, long may that continue. So brilliant. Thanks for inviting me on, Dan. And uh, yeah, I'd love to pick up the phone anytime. And as I said at the start, you don't want to be hearing my voice too much. You've just listened to a to a long podcast, an excellent episode with Alistair Hyam. You know, I learned loads from that conversation. You know, big, big takeaways getting down to that real understanding of what match flow and momentum mean. You know, it's not just a fluffy little thing that is out there. It's There's actually some real process behind it. And it's a subject that I'm sure if you want to know more about, I'm sure Alistair would love to, to hear from you. It's a conversation that he'll have. He's got his courses. So please do get involved in those. Hope everyone is well. 
wherever you are in the world. Another shout out to all of our friends for over in Ukraine. We can't have a podcast without mentioning what is happening happening over there. Uh, we're delighted on a personal note that we're able to welcome some some Ukrainian tennis players and their families to the academy this week. And they've, they've travelled. We've been watching our phones overnight as they've tried to get across the border. So we've got a few players. We'd love to help more. Anyone that does want to help, reach out. Anyone that's got any a tennis academy, a tennis club, housing possibilities, because we are in touch with some amazing people over there that are, we're trying to get the tennis community together. Next week, we have a, a lighter guest, uh, Matt Reed. Some of you will know Matt, some of you won't, but Matt Reed is really good friends and, and was the coach of Nick Kyrgios as well as his doubles partner. He also made final of Junior Wimbledon with Bernie Tomic and is a good friend of his and, and Leighton Hewitt. He's, he's this guy that he just, he's in the mix in Australian tennis. He's been as high as 60 in the world in doubles. He's currently 80, 180 in the world in singles. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a great guess with some amazing stories of these high profile players that all of you will know. So that's a one not to be missed. Keep sharing the podcast with your friends. We find out in a couple of weeks how we've got on in the Sports Podcast Awards. But a big thank you to you all who voted, took the time to vote. We appreciate you all. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. Control the Controllables.